The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. This is going to sound stupid, but I, I was very concerned that our guys would start shooting civilians, not because they're bad, but because it's now nighttime and all of a sudden thousands of people are running at you when all day long bombs going off and machine guns all day long. And so I, I called down, I'm like, dude, just prepare yourself. But in about 10 minutes, this is happening to you. But I think they're all civilians. I don't see a threat, but this is happening. I, I hope that made a difference. I don't know if it made a difference, but I, we made that radio call. And then it's like, okay, I'm like emergency bingo. Like I'm, I'm well below bingo. I'm so that, then it's like, well, what am I gonna do? I got no diverts. The whole country has fallen to the Taliban. I'm well below emergency gas. This plane is crashing in a few minutes and the runway's covered in people. All right, you have the aircraft. Tower 26 is release you, runway 411 Sam, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's uh, we were we were kicking it off before I hit record. We're up to recap uh, some of those awesome stories there. But thanks for joining me. You, I think, are the first U twenty eight slash AFSOC Bubba I've had on the podcast. So welcome. I'm super happy to be here, and I love what you're doing. I think it's uh, I think it's awesome. Inspire the next generation to get after it. You know. Yeah, well, you definitely got after it. We're going to dig into a lot of your career, but I want to kick it off just starting with like, what got you involved in flying and what was your path to, to get into the Air Force? Ooh, okay. Uh, so I, I'm not somebody who's super ate up with flying per se. My dad was a ranger. Uh, my brother's a ranger. Uh, my granddad was in Merrill's Marauders, so the precursor to the yeah. rangers. Uh, I just, uh, I don't know, I just... I always kind of got it. Uh, I feel calm. I like fighting. And so I, I looked at the world and I said, you know, uh, when I was in high school, uh, college, uh, the only fighting that existed was Operation Northern Watch and Southern Watch. And so I said, you know, if I'm going to get after it, uh, the only chance that I have to do that kind of stuff that my granddad got to do when he was bayoneting Japanese in the jungles of Burma, uh, you know, the only opportunity I've got is to try and fly. So I guess I'll roll the dice and try and fly. And then 9-11 happened. I was in ROTC and, uh, you know, I went to pilot training. I flew C-130s, which I, I was not personally super happy about. But the truth is I didn't do good enough in pilot training to get anything else. So I, I was exactly middle of the class. I, I got C-130s. I was happy to get C-130s um, because I didn't know anything. It turned out that it was an awesome assignment. I loved it. Um, uh, because, uh, at that phase in the Iraq war early in the Iraq war. So this is Oh four through like Oh eight. Um, you know, uh, C one thirties were doing a lot of cool stuff and, and I was uh, fortunate enough to do that. So anyway, I, long story short, I, I started, uh, not by being interested in flying, but by being interested in fighting, uh, I found a way to get into something where I could get after it. And so that I did. And I, I ended up with, uh, uh, I think I'm in the the upper percentages of of combat time. I, I was very blessed to be able to get out after it for a long amount of time. My family's great. My wife supported me. She's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I spent a lot of time deployed and uh, and getting after enemies all over the globe. Well, I was to say I was just looking at uh, some of the things you sent over. So air medals, typically single sortie air medals or 
uh, what are the accumulation of 20 sorties? I see, is this like your 35th oak leaf cluster? 33rd right. oak leaf. Yeah. So you're uh, obviously 36 or so. Yeah. Something like that. Flying a lot of time. When did you transition to the U28? Uh, 2009. So I knew a lot of dudes who went into it uh, when the squadron was initially stood up in late 2005, early 2006. They took some guys from my base. I was a single 30 guy. Uh, the guys they took were great people. Um, you know, the whole U-28 uh, mission was really secretive. And you know how it is. I mean, people are naturally attracted to something that's uh, selective and secretive. Uh, and so I, I really wanted to get after it. And it, I took kind of a circuitous route to get there. Um, but when I got there, I was very happy. Um, and I've flown a bunch of stuff other than the U-28 as well. Um, so uh, primarily ISR with U-28. But I, I've been instructor evaluator attack aircraft as well. So um, lots of different uh, aspects of uh, our global war on terror I was able to get after. Yeah, we do have a lot of talk. Because Carl Miller, who I had on the podcast, I think you guys were squadron mates in the Cessna 206 slash AC 206 with the Afghans, right? As well, did you do that? As yep, yep. So I flew. Uh, there's a 208 and the uh, 208, AC yep, 208. Sorry. Yeah, which is just a that's cool, man. It's uh, it's just a Cessna that we put rockets on and uh, and a designator. And so having some knowledge of how designators work and laser guided rockets work was was helpful. Carl's a great officer and a great human being. Uh, probably one of the best officers I've met, period, in my whole career. He's a super professional dude. We're lucky to have him. Yeah, I agree. And now he owes us $20 for uh, that plug there. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Hey, up, Carl. Yeah. All right. So I, I want to jump back. So that I'm thinking when I'm going through pilot training, because I graduated pilot training in 09, there uh, was the U-28 was starting to pop up on the radar. I think uh, guys and gals were dropping out of pilot training or like maybe it was just about coming about because I ended up faping. So I can't remember there. And then there's also some like weird, I say weird stuff, things that uh, it was, I forget how they actually dropped it, but it was like just a airplane, you know, it's like what happened at drop night, but it was guys uh, going over to AFSOC. Talk to me about like the, that time frame and AFSOC, how it kind of transitioned. Cause what I really would like to know is like, you know, as the U 28 came online, the MC-12, while that was ACC, eventually became AFSOC. There's, AFSOC is kind of, or it's, AFSOC's kind of like a, gro a growing beast at this time period, right? Yes. Well, SOCOM was a growing beast during that time period because, uh, so I'm just going to speculate here, but I, I think that when the war started, uh, you know, they started, let's just talk about Afghanistan, very special operations heavy. We've all seen the, the horse soldiers and, and things of that nature where, uh, a small teams of special operations folks, along with agency folks, were embedded within the Northern Alliance, and uh, they were able to to sort of uh, build momentum uh, using air power, using B-52s and, and other aircraft that were able to come there, and in ground-based laser designators. They, they were able to do a really amazing thing and just take a stalemate, which was Afghanistan at the time, the Taliban having most of the country with the exception of the Pangir Valley and, you know, some, some Southern and, and Western tribes, uh, but really the Pangir Valley, they were able to go in there in a short amount of time, uh, just by, uh, guts and, uh, boldness and bravery, just absolutely and technology just absolutely dominate and destroy a uh, massive amounts of Taliban. I mean, what they did in the early days is amazing. Uh, but then slowly the war transformed into a conventional thing. And that's an interesting discussion because as the techniques and tactics uh, change, 
I think our objectives also changed. They went from initially uh, maybe you know five meter objective, and I'm just speculating here, but kind right. of five meter objectives of revenge for 9/11, and it turned into I don't even know. Do you even know what our objectives were? I mean, create a stable democratic <laughs> Afghanistan that's going to be a beacon of hope and change in the middle. I, I don't even know. I mean, but yeah. it turned into something, and as it did, more money, more conventional forces. More and more and more of all that stuff uh, went there. So anyway, fast forward to 2009, all of a sudden we're like, dude, this conventional thing uh, is creating a lot of casualties. Turns out it's very uh, easy to be a guerrilla fighter and to bide your time until somebody's walking outside and then to hit them with an IED or a sniper or whatever. It turns out it's very, very hard to be a conventional occupying force. Oh no, what do we do? Um, well, we start ramping up special operations to try and find unconventional means of getting after our enemies who are not playing by rules that we're used to, but instead hiding amongst the populace. Uh, so anyway, what I think it birthed, and again, I'm speculating here, but what I think it birthed is uh, the best way I could summarize our strategy from call it 09, 10, 11, until really the end of the global war on terror, I, I think our strategy, best as I can, uh, best as I can relay it from the trenches, was a two-pronged assault. Number one, let's build up the government institutions of these various countries, whatever they are. Uh, let's build up their military. Let's do advisor stuff. Let's just make them better and more lethal so they can handle it for themselves. And number two. Let's do a concerted military effort uh, from us on high-value targets. Let's kill enemy high-value targets, destroy enemy um, command and control mechanisms, uh, prevent the enemy's ability to gather strength simultaneous with build organic domestic institutions. Those two things together, and again, I'm summarizing what I assume our strategy is, those two things in parallel, in concert together, will equal a winning approach. Uh, would you agree with my sort of summary of our strategy and the timeline? Yeah, I think that is a, that's a really good way of summarizing it. Because again, it, we wanted to nation build, for lack of a better phrase, right? Uh -huh. Be able to have democratic institutions maintain a stable nation and provide security on their own, right? And then we needed, in order for them to do that, we had to remove the bad guys or the people that were causing the trouble how do you how do you fit afsoc into that picture i think you're probably uh, the best person to uh yeah to weave this one yeah that's so uh so great question how does air power fit into that picture uh and and here's here's how i think air power fits into that picture and afsoc found a way to be uh very relevant because they were attached to socom and socom is if nothing else, SOCOM is always good at being aggressive and finding a way to be relevant. Uh, that's what I'll say uh, for them. No matter what the problem set is, spec SOCOM, Special Operations Command, uh, will find a way to put some very aggressive, very creative thinkers against a problem uh, to get to get an outcome. Uh, to get an outcome. Um, so how does AFSOC fit into that? Well, uh, turns out it's very risky to have forces on the ground. So uh, AFSOC uh, pursued multiple mechanisms of technical means to uh, to bring creative solutions to bear. And I'm, 
that wording is vague and, and easy because <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, there's a security, <laughs> the, there's, there's a security yes. aspect of this, right? <laughs> yes. uh, how about uh, this? How about this? That could be the most generic statement that's, ever. But that was, yeah, that's so. <laughs> well, that's Boy. interesting, Rain, because <laughs> the most dangerous things are sometimes masked with a very generic statement, right? Yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, I mean, there obviously there's a big security piece uh, with with all this, right? We're we're trying to navigate that. Yeah. So precision um, fires. The ability to find, fix, finish, analyze, exploit that F3 EA loop that, you know, McRaven espoused and some other really noteworthy uh, members of, of special operations. Uh, so finding like where in general is your adversary, fixing them, what exactly is their daily habits? Where are they vulnerable? Think about yourself. I mean, do you take the same drive to work every day? I don't anymore. Okay. But most there, people, but, hold on, but, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Are there three, maybe four different routes that you take? What? How many number of routes do you take to work? Right. That's that's a good point. Yeah. There's not you but like two or yeah two or three options, right? And that's yeah. Most so people. if I if I spend a month watching you, do you think I could fix a pattern of your habit of life? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think I could find you first? Hey, I know you're in the Atlanta area generally. Maybe you've got some. Uh, you know, things that you do that broadcast your location, some people you love who maybe aren't very disciplined with the way they talk and, and find you and then fix you to say, okay, you know what? He, he's gone and I didn't see him for 24 hours. He's gone and seen him for four days. Uh, oh, I, I heard he flies maybe, uh, uh, you know, commercially right now. And so that makes sense with this habit. But if I keep trying to fix you, if I keep drilling down on that, I bet I can ascertain a pattern in your life. Okay. And once I ascertain a pattern in your life and I have it, then I know that, you know, when you leave your house on Thursday, let's just say, for example, you've got a 40% chance of going to an intersection where for 600 meters, there's no collateral damage. Now I'm going to finish you with precision fires. Okay. Then I'm going to analyze what happened. You know, listen to all the people in your life that we also might know about, uh, chatter about it. And then I'm going to analyze that. And then I'm going to exploit it to find other people like you. Um, you know, who I think are involved in things that, that I think are, are bad. And we're just going to continue that cycle until we work through every single target out there. So that, that's sort of an explanation. And AFSOC found ways to insert themselves through technical means in that process. Is that a fair way that adds yeah. some details while keeping it uh, neutered? Yeah, no, I think that's great. Did you see, because you had a little bit of time in the conventional big blue, and then most of the time doing AFSOC, when... We're talking solving problems in general. Uh, everyone tends to gripe big blue. It's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of red tape. Were a lot of those hurdles removed for you to, hey, I have a good idea that I think I can solve this problem? Or oh, do you? Or, yeah. or, or, or are yeah. those things still, those barriers still there that it takes usually moving a mountain to make something happen? Yeah. Okay. So I've, hmm, that's a great question. Um, How about this? Um, you can remove barriers yourself. If you're in a place where there's a need uh, and there's a culture that's around you that that accepts a little bit of uh, flexibility, uh, if you're the kind of person who can just remove barriers, I mean, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? If you start with the assumption that um, okay, let, let's just brainstorm this. 
you know, trust tree, judgment-free zone. Let's just brainstorm <laughs> this problem set. And let's uh, let's just say if there were no rules, what would the answer be? Okay, cool. Here's the answer. Oh, well, now there's a constraint. Now there's some rules. We have to obey this. Well, we don't want to do that. Okay, cool. So then you, you tweak and you tweak that answer. But eventually you get to a point where if you start with that sort of mechanism of problem solving, you get to a point where um, where you've got options that maybe you wouldn't have thought of if your baseline approach was, what am I allowed to do? Because if, you're, if your first answer to the question, the question is, how do you solve this tactical problem? How do you become relevant? How do you get in there and mix it up? If your first answer is, um, well, what am I allowed to do? What, what does my boss want me to do? Uh, well, then you're always going to be in a self-imposed box, right? If you start with, um, you know, what's the shortest line between two points, uh, and then you start adding on your constraints, I think you you might come to a place that is more creative uh, than, than you would otherwise. And then when you bring those creative solutions to your boss constantly, um, you know, and you've thought through them, if you've done your homework, you... You have to figure out a way to staff it. That's just the reality of life. Um, but once you sort of vet it a little bit and you are able to present that in a professional means, people take you seriously. Add that to some combat credibility, having been there and done that a few times, and and suddenly you have a seat at the table where serious people are having serious discussions, and you can raise your hand and say, I have an idea that we've been kicking around. It's not fully fleshed out, but here it is. What do you think about doing X? And no matter how outrageous that thing might sound at the be at the beginning, uh, if you you come at it from a certain angle and you build a certain amount of credibility, uh, then that thing can get across the finish line. And so, I mean, there are uh, a series of absolutely wild things that uh, that AFSOC and U-28s have been able to do in the course of the war by having a culture of approaching problem solving uh, sort of with that methodology. Um, as opposed to approaching it with a very, uh, you know, rule heavy methodology that, that sort of forces you to say, well, I, I just assume these constraints are, and so I'm going to get after it. Here's an example. And I don't want to talk about this too much, but, uh, I really think that's a great question. Um, here's an example. Uh, I was in Mali in Western Africa. We're supporting the French and, uh, the French are having a really hard time finding the enemy and fixing them and killing them. And we want to support the French so that the French will build some time and space for us to support our own objectives, getting after our own target set. So it's really a lot of political nuance there with we're getting after some shared targets, but some of their sources are our targets and vice versa. It's a really interesting place to navigate. We're, we're, uh, we're told, hey, there's a tick, troops in contact, uh, you know, uh, massive um, ambush of some forces, uh, and they're in they're in fire now. We want to get after. Uh, well, if you've looked at a map of Africa, you know that it's absolutely massive. So when you get a report of a tick happening now, this isn't I'm going to take off from Baghdad and go to Najaf. This is like I'm going to fly from you know Miami to New York City and see if I can. I mean, like the the time here because of the distance is just it's it's massive. And so we're like, okay, dude, well, first of all, let's, let's, who do we have to launch immediately? Okay, cool. Uh, we're going to launch them. Um, and, uh, and we're going to get after there. And then while they're flying, we'll start gapping, grabbing other details. Okay. And, uh, 
<clears throat> and if we can get up there immediately, we'll, we'll in the flying time, since we're communicating with a platform, we can transmit them all of the relevant data to actually fix it. So like, let me just tell you, Rain, take off and fly north. And you're like, what's my MGRS coordinates? I don't have it. Take off and fly north as fast as you can. And in an hour, I'll have both a place for you to land and get some gas. And I'll have probably some coordinates that you might be 80 <laughs> miles away from. Like, that's how we're living, you know? So anyway, they're flying <laughs> up there. Uh, and uh, a guy comes in who was an experienced dude flying KC-130s, uh, KC-135s. And he's like, oh, you can't send that crew. What You got to recall them. Uh, they flew this morning. And I'm like, I, I don't care. Um, they have, they're, they're here. They're legal. They're, we sent them, you know, they're, they're doing this. Uh, and he's like, well, you can't because once a crew flies and comes back, that's it. They're done for the day, regardless of the numbers of the crew rest. And I'm like, how about this? How about you show me exactly where that's written, uh, in the next 30 minutes or else they're doing this because we're doing it. Um, because I don't want to violate something that's written down, right? That's the, some rules can be bent, others can be broken kind of thing. Um, anyway, he, he comes back to me and he says, well, I can't do it. I, I can't show you. I looked, I can't find anything. Um, but here's what I know. I know that in the tanker, that was our policy. Once you take off and you fly your mission, you come back, like that's it, you're done. You have to reset. And so the, I didn't think those guys were legal for crew rest. And while he's reporting this to me, those guys are now in, actively engaged in combat and, and I'm working their, their position to go uh, land and, and refuel so they can go back to active combat. Um, and it was just, it stuck with me. That might not sound like a, a really deep story, but it stuck with me because here's a dude who was experienced and one would think that experience, experience is always good, right? Experience always provides you uh, some deep knowledge of how to like do things better. You're experienced. Uh, false. His experience informed him that he should start with constraints, what he can't do. As opposed to, you know, some experience out there uh, allows you to say, um, okay, I know that we did it a certain way before and it worked. So whatever this new problem is, there must be a, there must be an answer. I'm going to try. So I, I guess where I'm going with this, and I know this is kind of a long-winded route to answer your question, but it's a really interesting topic, is that uh, there are some people who start with constraints in the Air Force for better or for worse, has a culture of starting with constraints. And uh, one thing that I really admire about special operations in general is that philosophically, they don't start with constraints. They start with what they can do. Now, if there are constraints, if there are rules or laws, or you know, we don't want to kill civilians, or great, work those in. It'll change how we do our problem set. But let's start with being creative. Start with how to be efficient. Start with how to hurt your enemy and then add in the constraints. And so it was really interesting to see that story, that story sort of uh, play out real time in combat. And yeah. uh, and I, we went for it. Uh, I'm saying I went for it. I, I didn't fly that mission up. A great uh, captain working for me flew the mission and got after it uh, after he had already flown an earlier mission that morning. And he went to absolute max duty day and, and slayed the enemy and good on him. Um, but uh, had we not approached it uh, creatively, we would have been limited in our ability to help. Um, does that make sense? I don't know. What do you think, dude? I think it's uh, spot on. Cause that's kind of, that's what I wanted to go with. So one to parallel that 
Um, you probably have heard that. I think they say about six weeks in a squadron, six weeks in a new organization. That's about all you're good for when you show up that you're going to have the, you're going to see how things operate. And then when you see this is maybe not right, or there's a better way of doing it, that you can inject that after that six week point, maybe it's nine weeks. You are now part of the problem. You're not going to necessarily see it. And because that's the way we've always done it. So I think it parallels no, 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 that no, no. tanker guy, right? I mean, come from his mindset. Uh, maybe in the tanker world, like, yeah, if you go fly for one hour, just because you land, you don't turn into a pumpkin. You could go fly another sortie if you need to fly another sortie and you're rested, you know, but it, it parallels that. And I think that's a good way to, because you always hear like the Navy, they start with, you know, if it's not in the book, I can do it. Right. And we do yeah. the opposite of like, if it's not in the book, I can't do it. You know, I have to go apply. Dude, it's funny. I've heard that my whole career, uh, that the Navy lets you do it unless it's expressly prohibited. And the Air Force, you can't do it unless it's expressly prohibited. I'm sorry, unless it's expressly allowed. That's the Air right. Force way. Uh, I flew with the Navy, uh, flew T-44s yeah. with the Navy. Uh, didn't find that to be true at all, number one. Uh, <laughs> number two, uh, turns out I went my whole career in the Air Force just doing things that made sense. And if I could justify it to my boss, if it wasn't expressly prohibited, uh, nobody really said anything to me. I It made sense. It's wartime. We did it. So I, I would say that that characterization, which I've heard, is false. And uh, who was, I think it was Gandhi said, you must become the change you wish to bring into the world, right? So if people yep. don't like the way that they are uh, prohibited from solving the problem, the tactical problems that they have to solve, and they don't like the constraints on them, then I would say challenge those constraints in a professional manner. Challenge your boss to defend the constraints that don't affect the mission. Uh, and I think you might be surprised that, you know, a lot of, most people want to solve the problem, even at higher levels. And it's really easy to throw spears at, at generals. And, you know, I, I've done it too. And I will continue to, because a lot of them deserve yeah. them. Um, but, uh, but just try, man, be the person who tries. Here, here's my thought on it. I think maybe AFSOC never having been in it, you hit on the problem, solving the problem. If there's not a problem, and there's always problems, but it's the whatever the common problem is. And, you know, hey, if we're in country X, Y, or Z, and we're going after bad guy X, Y, or Z, there that's a unified problem. If you're back stateside, um, not all the time, right? But I've had some bosses, right? Like their problem, while it should be yours, maybe yeah. might not be the most tactically, um, uh, I guess, necessity. It's, it's not the... Yeah, it's not the tactics. They're worried about the PowerPoint or whatever it might be. And this yeah. is, we really go down the rabbit hole, right? So I do think you have to have a unifying problem set to have that buy-in. My one parallel to this would be demo. Nothing tactically, tactic, no tactics about demo and doing air shows whatsoever. But I did have some good bosses where we did different things. And it was kind of taking that approach like, hey, uh, while we've never done this before, we can do this. You know, here's the gain. And this is how we mitigate any kind of concerns. And if you have someone who is open and receptive, you usually can sell that. And again, because it didn't create another problem from them or take away from the problems of generating sorties to go down range or what combat air power, you can do it. Um, so I, I don't know. I wonder what are your thoughts are like, because AFSOC, I think, is probably more generally focused or singularly focused on supporting SOCOM and the warfighter. The rest of the big blue sometimes get lost. That's 
And that's a very general statement, so not completely fair, but unless your unit is going to go down range, you're usually worried about other things. I imagine AFSOC is a little bit more tied into it with GWAT and everything that's been going on in the last 20 years um, on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, people used to ask me because there, there were a lot of different U-28 squadrons. Um, I've been in a lot of different uh, non-U-28 squadrons um, and still in a lot of different airplanes. And, and I'd hear people ask, What's oh? What's the best squadron? What's the best platform? You know what? Where should I go? Blah blah blah. And here's sort of my my answer is, uh, the best squadron is the deployed squadron, because whatever squadron is downrange facing those real problems uh, with uh, authority to get after it, and with a single-minded focus to solve those problems. That's, that's the most exciting place to be, uh, you know? Um, and it's, it's tough. I, I bet in the fighter world, it's probably really tough to predict how can you be one of those guys. Uh, but in different, you know, in, in AFSOC, uh, you're most likely to be one of those guys eventually slash very soon, just because it's, it's very heavily deployed. Um, and, uh, I know deployments wear on people, uh, particularly when they're prolonged, which there are prolonged deployments now. And that's, that's tough. Uh, on the family life, but when there's a war going on and it's been going on for a while and you're making life and death decisions and you're there and your your bros aren't coming home and you're seeing people that you played hockey with and, and the hockey, uh, the, the street hockey thing at Kandahar and one of them takes a round in the, in the hip and they're not coming back and, you know, you're in Mazari Sharif and you're eating at the, you're eating breakfast with somebody and you go out and you do a, a vehicle interdiction with them and, and they die. Um, you know, those kinds of problems become uh, much more personal and uh, the you you exploit every single possible avenue to get after them to be the most lethal you can and there's nothing inhibiting you and that's the most exciting place to be so uh, yeah I, I guess what I'm saying uh, is that uh, anybody who wants to find a place to be relevant and uh, and useful and something that's engaging uh, something that fills you with a sense that you're you're doing you're invested in a thing that is worth your best effort that's rare in life you know yeah. I, i'm out now i'm retired now it's it's rare in life like we were talking about earlier if you have that itch um then uh join the military learn to fly and deploy you'll <laughs> 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 scratch it i promise and, and i i scratched it quite a bit yeah just yeah looking i have your 33rd oak leaf cluster air metal pulled up here oh yeah I want to, I want, before we jump into a couple, I want to get a couple flying stories. This might just lend to it in and of itself, but can you give me the, uh, I don't know, career fair, what the U-28 is and does, that type of speech, just to paint a picture for those listening. You might not be oh, all man. too familiar with what yeah. the U-28. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's what I was saying. <laughs> you know, we can do career, we can do the career fair. Like, uh, well, I, I actually did a lot of career fields when I was a DO and commander, um, uh, of the op squadron, uh, one of the op squadrons, I should say, uh, because I, I really think it's very valuable uh, to go and to talk to people at UPT and to explain to them uh, what what they're getting into if they come this direction. And also to filter out people who maybe aren't a good fit, because we had a lot of yep. people who assumed it was one thing. Obviously, there's a security aspect here, um, but I would give them secret briefs at UPT. And uh, there were a lot of people who were like, ooh, uh, I, that's not for me. Perfect. That's a win-win. I, you know, find something that is for you. Find the thing 
Uh, you know, there's many different uh, platforms in the Air Force that have many different uh, functions. Find the function that is best suited to your personality. Um, that's a win for everybody. Don't come here because you want to be a certain thing uh, once you know what it is. So because you want to be a certain thing, if it's not a good fit for you personally. For me personally, it was a great fit. Uh, but if that's not for you, then go somewhere that is a good fit for you. That, like be be who you are, you know, follow your heart. <laughs> right, yeah, go, if you if you go to humanitarian yeah, so, missions, so how yeah, about, the U-28 how about this? For the, so, so for the for the for the U-28 poster, I'll say if you want to um if you want to do something that that matters for the nation, um and, and works with the best people that we have going after some of the most intractable problems that were dealt with, then come to this platform. Uh, if you want to fly something that goes really fast or you want to tell your parents you're you're doing something and they can you know pull up pictures online and look at it and say, wow, this is really cool. If you're inspired by other things, if you want to travel to the most beautiful places in the world, if you want to go to Bali, you know, um, probably this isn't for you. Um, but if you if you don't mind uh, sitting someplace uh, in a tent, eating an MRE, uh, doing something that a lot of people are not interested in, talking to your family infrequently, which sucks, um, but doing it for something maybe at the end that maybe if the planets align, maybe uh, gets to be really, really impactful. Um, if if you're that kind of person, uh, then then uh, we got we got jobs for you. <laughs> um, that's, that's sort of how I would, I would phrase it. And I, you know, there are a lot of things about the U-28 that are, are not, um, that we could talk about openly, but it, it's just, there are some things that we can't, and that's just the way it is with a lot of platforms out there. And this is one of them. Yeah. I did see a brand new one at an air show before they slapped a bunch of stuff in and they, they brought it in, they stopped it. Uh, what was it? I think it did it. Shaw still had the new, um, the new leather smell when they picked up from the factory to go take it to do whatever they were going to put in it. So U28, if I had a couple million dollars, I would buy a Pilatus just, um, Oh just yeah, saying. man. It's a great plane. That and the, yeah. uh, actually the caravan, I really like flying the caravan. Uh, you can put it in anywhere. You can land on unimproved surfaces, land on dirt. I mean, I've taken that thing to, I've landed the PC 12 at over a thousand different airfields just all across the country. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Um, yeah, so we can do these, uh, we would do these things called off-station trainers where we just take a plane for a weekend and I'd hit up like 40 fields. I mean, private airfields, you're uh, actually north of you. I know you're in Atlanta. There's a place called Heaven's Landing that's really good. It's a private field. Yep. The owner's really cool, really challenging to get into, kind of narrow in a valley. Um, but we would go intentionally looking for the most challenging possible airfields. I mean, FAA hazardous airfields. Uh, you know, dirt strips. I went to Hulapai Nation in the Grand Canyon, landing in the Grand Canyon. I mean, uh, think of a challenge and uh, here's a plane for the weekend, go do it. And and if you have that mentality as a squadron, what you'll do is you'll build a squadron of flyers who are excited about finding new ways to challenge themselves um, just for the off chance that maybe one day uh, it'll be useful. Um, and you know what? If you do enough weird stuff, it will be. And, and I've been in situations, that, as you've seen, that that it turns out <laughs> that it's super helpful to have trained in doing some unconventional things. Yeah, I was I was going to save it for a little while longer, but I mean, this might be a perfect segue because you did uh, you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, and just reading through 
this 15th and uh, 16th of August, I've we've talked uh, a lot of the C-17 Bubba's, what they were going through on the podcast with regard to what was happening at the airfield. I'd like to talk to you about it uh, and just what was going on then and then the uh, sortie that uh, you were awarded a DFC for. Can you, I guess, let's probably back up to, I don't know, would it be, would it be appropriate to back up to um, pre-planning or what you were doing on the 15th or the 14th <laughs> of August? Or, yeah, like, uh, what, was, what, was, what were things, yeah, yeah, what were yeah. things looking like? Oh man, hey, dude, Afghanistan is like a meteor that I'm like this close to, you know, and it's like, I, yeah, maybe some time and space I could back up far enough to have like a, a more cogent opinion. So I'll, I'll answer your question. I'll, I'll throw some things at you, but I, I don't know what the right answer was. I am very interested in why we lost the war. Um, I deployed to Afghanistan 10, 11 times, just Afghanistan alone. And, um, I mean, I, I, get, I, dude, I did everything I could to win, and we didn't, and that was, uh, that was unfortunate. Do you, do you think? Do you think we could have won? What does win mean? Yeah, I mean, do, do you think so? <laughs> back up, back up to the beginning of our two pillars, oh. right? Basically, establishing a, a democ- establishing a government that would not foster or allow terrorism to, uh, grow within its borders, as well as uh, remove all the the bad people. Do you think if that was our, that's a loose definition of winning? Establishing that a was... government that doesn't foster terrorism within its borders. Is that what you defined it as? Yeah. Well, I think if we jump back to what we were originally, when we opened this podcast up, right? The parallels are like, hey, this is kind of what we, I think, generally are saying is we want a government that's established that we don't have to necessarily support um, every single day and every single minute. And that we want the bad guys gone, right? I think that's... yeah. Yeah, if that's what you want to define winning as, bad yeah. guys gone. A good. Do you think we could have won that? Yeah, dude. Um, hmm. I I do not think that we could have established a democratic, fair country that loved America and was willing to seed its territory to be a launching space against Iran in the event that they were to get spicy and an ability for us to project power throughout uh, that entire region. Um, I do not think we could have made that throughout the territory of Afghanistan as defined by its current borders. But you can shrink that definition of a win to get something. And I do think we, if we had been smarter and better brother, I do think that we could have gotten something smart out of that. Um, I think that in 2020, after the Doha Accords were signed, um, we should have withdrawn, uh, you know, hindsight's 2020, but I'll I said this at the time uh, as well. Everybody uh, blew me off, but uh, we should have withdrawn the idea of Afghanistan as something defensible. I spent 2020 defending uh, a plethora of FOGs, forward operating bases, staffed entirely by the Afghans, primarily Anasak, the Afghan commandos, all over the country. We had these tiny little, like, uh, forward operating bases. And I mean thousands of them, dude. Indefensible. We had them in the middle of enemy territory and Nimrods uh, and places that were just so far from the central government. They couldn't give resupply, they, which I tried to solve as an advisor. They, they couldn't, they could not survive. It was the stupidest strategy in the world. If we had recalled all of those people around Kabul, Fortress Kabul, uh, out to Jalalabad, so you have, you know, the dam and you have uh, 
the Sarobi Dam and you have everything to the east there. You have the border with Pakistan, the Panjir Valley. That that's a strong. If we had just if the if the Afghan government, Jarawa, the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, if they had said we're in a desperate situation and we're unable to defend the expanse of our territory, uh, but we can withdraw. Yes, it's a terrible thing because we leave some of our people to the mercy of the Taliban and the hinterlands, uh, but we are going to secure this area and slowly work our way out. I, I think that that is a strategy maybe that could have resulted in winning. I think that uh, we need to redefine what we mean by a democratic Afghanistan. Um, you know, not every culture necessarily takes the same um, approach to democracy that we do, uh, which is to say that some places just like a strongman. You know, that's just a thing that works for some people. Uh, I mean, I lived with the Afghans for a long time and uh, they are not like you. They are different than you. They're not they're not bad. I'm not throwing spears at all, but they're just different. And anyway, where am I going with this? Uh, yeah, dude, we could have gotten something out of Afghanistan that was better than what we got. What we got was a national disgrace. We got a humiliation. We got, you know, the same images of that Huey and Hanoi with people falling off of it. That's what we got out of Kabul. And it was... It was terrible, by the way. It was much worse than that. Uh, it was much worse than the fall of Saigon. Um, I said, oh, no, I'm in Saigon. Uh, yeah, dude, uh, we could have gotten something better if we had been more realistic about it, but we weren't realistic about it. Uh, we didn't want the optics. I mean, the whole reason we abandoned Bagram, which was a strategically defensible location, the reason we abandoned it is because we had an artificial cap on the number of people in country. And we said, well, we can't, both simultaneously support the security for the embassy at Kabul and, you know, 45, 50 miles north support Bagram. So it's one or the other. It got to that point based on the number of people. And so pick one. And the decision was made to pick, uh, you know, leaving Bagram to the Afghans and going to to Hkaya, uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport, based purely on what well, would look really bad if we abandoned the embassy early. And so because of short-term optics, we chose to forego long-term strategy. I mean, that's the story of the global war on terror. It was a stupid decision. It blew up in our face in a spectacular fashion. Um, so do I think we could have won in Afghanistan by your original definition? No, probably not. But something more measured um, was achievable there. And certainly the spectacular failure that we experienced was not inevitable. Uh, that was a result of human decisions. I think that is a phenomenal way of putting that. And the parallels there to Vietnam and McNamara and counting in, in the, the numbers obsession, which drives political decisions, because that's exactly what this is. I, I do think that, as you alluded to, we, we could have gotten something in a minimum of a strategic win out of there, whether that had been just semi-regional stability in that country, if it, you fall back, like as you mentioned, you, you put it very eloquently. But with a small contingent force, I think, you know, you can tamp things down. Who knows what's going to rear its ugly head out of there in the next year, five years. But yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's, a, it's a cesspool, and we're going to have to deal with it again, unfortunately. Um, yeah. You know, you know what would have helped uh, early on? I think if we had been less prideful, and thinking that our enemy was terrorism. I mean, the global war on terror, by phrasing it like that, that's meaningless. What What is terror? I mean, there's always going to be a terrorist somewhere. Look at the Tamil Tigers. They're localized to Sri Lanka, 
the Shining Path, localized uh, to Peru, they're terrorists everywhere. We're not going to defeat a tactic. But what we could do is we could have defined our enemy a little bit better. Um, our enemy was internationally minded, expansionist Islamic uh, terrorists, people who were willing to uh, and had the capacity to go international, to threaten us at home, uh, to do the 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 nightclub thing in Paris, um, the Bali bombings, like expand fundamental, radical, violent jihad internationally. If we had said these are the people that are our enemies and uh, and sort of left domestic politics to domestic politics, I think that would have been uh, that would have been something that we can win. And by the way, we did a great job smashing those people. We did a phenomenal job smashing those people. You you remember after 9-11, uh, everybody said it's not a matter of if but when we experienced the second 9-11. And while we did have domestic terrorist attacks, uh, they were kind of lone wolf things. You know, the nightclub shooting, the underwear bomber, uh, you know, the thing in Boston, the, the guy down at Fort Hood who was inspired um, by, uh, you know, a cleric in Yemen. Um, we, we had some things, but we didn't have anything on the scale of 9-11. And our enemy absolutely intended to do something on the scale of 9-11 again and again and again. They were evil and they hated us. And we smashed them ruthlessly. There were people, um, and I got to be around them, and I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, there were people who uh, did anything and everything for years, ate whatever sacrifice was required of them in order to kill, kill, kill our nation's enemies to protect, you know, school kids in Des Moines and uh, to make sure that some mom in Kansas isn't blown up. And that's not hyperbole. Our enemies had that intent, but there is a finite number of people who are uh, sophisticated enough to be internationally savvy and, you know, work the finances that are required and the bomb making skills that are required and the, the connections to a local mosque to do that. There's not an infinite number of people who could do that. Uh, there is a very small number of people to, who could do that. And uh, great people at the agency found them, uh, worked their contacts, uh, built a target deck, and then just ruthlessly worked through that target deck. Uh, no matter where it was with the right authorities. And I, I'm super happy that I could be around some of those people and be part of some of those things. Um, and that that was a win in the global war on terror. Uh, unfortunately, it turns out that there's a near infinite number of people who grew up in Najaf and, you know, are able to wield an AK and sit on the corner of, you know, first Najaf and second Najaf Street. You know what I'm saying? And so if we had, <laughs> yeah. if we had maybe scale down uh, the scope of our adversaries to something uh, more measured, I think we could have been more successful uh, than we were. Uh, what do you it's think? Great, what, yeah. what do you think about that? Uh, I think it's a great way of putting it. If you also look other places in the world, some of the places you might have been or might not have been, it's almost using a, a surgical, you're using precision to remove those people who have the capabilities or have the mindsets or the desires to attack Americans, Europeans abroad, outside of their neighborhood, right? Out, you know, they, it's not just the person who's sitting on the street corner that is an insurgent that doesn't like its government, and then we happen to be there, you know, right or wrong. 
but using the surgical precision of finding the real people who are engaged in international terrorism or international who want to go forth and conquer any or kill any infidel by any means possible and reign terror, you use a surgical approach. And it, again, you're going to use the authorities that are approved, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's going to expand past it's past the boundaries of just one country. But yeah. you can't go in there with a sledgehammer every single time and you're rolling in with the 101st yeah, yeah, and the 82nd yeah. Airborne and and doing these. And yep, yep, here's 100,000 MRAPs going down the street. Maybe there's a time and place for that. But I think Afghanistan, uh, I was actually just watching Netflix just put out a thing maybe two weeks ago. But it's talking about the horsemen up there uh-huh. in the northern part. Talking about the CIA guys going yeah. in there and doing some of that targeting. It's like you by doing surgical strikes and removing the the people it, it's it's a balance of getting too large right because once the the beast gets to the machine gets to be so large then you're almost creating more work in of itself yes and then when you're pissing off like when you kill so and so and it pisses off you know 20 more people and then yeah. you know, kill you know it's like it's just it it's it's repeating and growing yeah. and spawning like all right. Yeah, this is one thing. So, I, so I said, now, like, now we get to a really fun part of the conversation because I, I'm going to tell you something that is is highly controversial. Okay, but uh, I've done a bunch of stuff, and here's my conclusion. People can take it right, wrong, and different, but here's what I think. Uh, I agree with you. Surgical, pre- precise mechanisms of killing the right people that that's the way to get after it. But why did we fail? Because we did fail. Um, I think we failed because we were so ate up with our precision capacity that we didn't understand that sometimes you do need a sledgehammer. And so the ability for us to balance between those two, I think there was no political will to do it. It is not the the clean, eloquent solution, um, but it is a solution. Uh, the most dangerous, most stupidest thing that you can do is to start with violence and then say, oh, I'm, I don't want to go all the way. I'm going to take my hand off. Because then they say to themselves, well, we can put up with that. And to the Taliban's credit, they took everything we threw at them. And we threw a lot of stuff at them. You asked me what I was doing 14 August. We threw everything we could at them. As they got more aggressive, our uh, the length of our leash lengthened. <laughs> the length of our leash increased. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a smarter way to say it. Uh, uh, we, 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 we attacked more. Um, as we saw the thing fallen. And so I, I spent the week prior to the fall of Kabul engaged in an epic sleigh fest um, as we tried anything to stop the fall of Kabul. And it resulted in us making a series of foolish decisions, whereas the Taliban, the line Taliban commander was completely synced with the senior Taliban commander, who was the recipient of the high-value individual HVT targeting campaign, right? They were both completely synced. The guy who was storming the Afghan fob, the regular foot soldier, was 100% synced in his mentality of, I got to go all the way with the senior guy sitting at the council in Pakistan because they were both equally targets. And so, and, and that the same was not true for us. Um, so I, I think that we're just bad at violence. I mean, we, we got people who can wield it well, so I would agree with you. I had General Holmes, who's the ACC commander on this. I asked him a question uh, tying to why why this did not work. 
But he goes, it's somewhere down the road, and it senior policy, right? I mean, he's four-star. Uh, but there was the thing. We don't want to end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times that we <laughs> killed someone. <laughs> so we started taking this, like, well, that's when we show up with GBU 38 V5s with no collateral damage, right? Because we're only going to hit this one person. Uh-huh. The flip side, I think we were talking beforehand, right? The the difference of going into Operation Inherent Resolve in Iraq and Syria. There, my experience was the gloves were off. Um, you know, my first time I dropped was via data link message. And it was just, if you see any military age man, yep. if you see a vehicle, just drop on it. Yep. Like there was no talk anyone, just go do it. Yep. Like, that that because the world was responding and it was acceptable right at that time they people hadn't couldn't imagine that you know individuals would behead and line people up and wrap debt cord around their necks and yep video it and blow it up and do uh hollywood cinematic films about it yep so the appetite that they must be eradicated from the earth by any means necessary but that that wanes you know in the public eye and then policymakers tend to accept that. But I, I would agree. If you want to saw violent people respond to violence, you know, that's a, that's the language and saying the on off switch, if you're the person on the receiving end, it's not a Rio stat. It's not like, well, maybe just a little bit of this, like it's life or death. Yeah. When it comes you, down, you, to you know what brother? And that's where I do blame our generals. And I, I'm not here to throw spears at, at people unwarrantedly, but, uh, I do blame them for that. They, they accepted constraints where we should not have had constraints. Um, and I, I've heard their answer to this. Their answer is, well, if I didn't accept those constraints, I'd be fired. Um, and my answer is, yeah, yeah, then you'd be fired. That's correct. Uh, you know, we don't need our general officers to, uh, you know, fly overhead an objective and put a laser on it. We don't need our general officers to be a spotter on the ground in Kunar province for a sniper team. We don't need them to line up in a stack and throw a flashbang in or rush in and, and you know, cover the northeast corner while somebody else takes the south. We don't need that kind of tactical risk-taking on the part of our generals. What we do need on the part of our military leadership is a moral risk-taking. We need them to say, uh, I can't accept this because this thing you're putting on me, politicians, it is is ultimately putting more risk on our forces and threatening our objective. And, and so I can't accept it. And if you want to fire me for, for that, then that's okay. Uh, fire me for that. Uh, but they wouldn't do it. It's socially awkward. Their peers would look down on them. Somebody else would replace them right away. Guess what? We're all replaceable. We're all replaceable. Um, but they just wouldn't do it. Not a single general ever said, I can't in good conscience continue this. Instead, all of them said, victory is right around the corner, guys. Just give me another billion, you know, and shame on them. Shame on them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, when I look back on, on that time and on everything that I did and on what I saw people sacrifice, I am, I am proud of the people I got to be around. But I am left with a lingering sense of anger because the the failure was not inevitable. The failure was a result of people who were too afraid to take risk. While while people overhead the objective or on the objective were taking extreme tactical risk, the people leading them were not taking personal risk. It was it was embarrassing. I don't want to be the guy who 
you know, uh, gets fired after two months in command. I don't want to do that. Um, right. And so we just had a bunch of yes men, yes men our way to failure. So maybe there's some value in analyzing what happened and why it happened. And maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe my analysis is off point. Maybe it's too emotional. That's fine. But I, I think, brother, if we start, uh, if, if people who have been there and done that can at least start a conversation about what happened uh, with the foundation of we didn't achieve our objective. We said we were going to do one thing. That thing didn't happen successfully. Why? Uh, maybe that's an honest, fair way to start the conversation. There's a bunch of different answers. Uh, I'm, you know, I've got an opinion, but my opinion might be wrong. Uh, I tend to blame things that I think I understand. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm off base. Um, but, uh, but I think not having the conversation and just forgetting it and rushing to the next problem set is a recipe for future disaster. Are you a passionate aviation enthusiast? And you'll be thrilled to hear about our sponsor, Aircore Aviation. This exciting company has been revolutionizing the aviation industry since 2008, and they have some amazing career opportunities available. More about that in just a minute. Aircore Aviation is at the forefront of airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating all the way back to World War II. Their dedicated team is involved in various aspects of aerospace, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support using state-of-the-art technology. Their exceptional expertise in core manufacturing capabilities like metal forming, CNC machining, and complete aircraft rebuilding has led to the restoration of some award-winning aircraft, such as a couple P-51s, such as P-51 Thunderbird, Twilight Tier, and Sierra Su-2. And if you've been following me for a while, you might remember I was fortunate enough to fly over the Super Bowl in 2018 in Minneapolis. The formation was led by Sierra Su-2 alongside two A-10s and myself in F-16, so this is a very cool full-circle experience. These incredible achievements have captured the attention of aircraft owners, aviation enthusiasts, and the general public alike. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation, then Aircore Aviation is the perfect place for you. They are rapidly expanding their team in 2024 and have job openings in departments such as engineering and CAD, quality assurance, fabrication, and restoration. This is your chance to turn a passion into profession. Aircore Aviation is offering some amazing benefits for full-time positions, including health insurance, PTO, HSA, retirement plans, life insurance, and the extra perk of enjoying Fridays off. If you're ready to be part of a team dedicated to fulfilling the dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com backslash careers today and take the first step towards an exciting career in aviation. Again, that's aircoreaviation.com backslash careers. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. I wonder, this is like to be play devil's advocate and I'm trying to put, you know, because I, I agree with what you're saying. But the flip side of it would be if the military ran it, I don't think it would have gone down the way it did. I think yeah. the military said, no, you know, hey, we're going to, all right, yeah, we're going to fall back to this geographic area and we're going to hold this territory because it provides a strategic importance to us or whatever it might be. But we're definitely not going to tell them when we're going to leave. We're definitely not going to, we're going to leave on our own terms or we're going to draw down on our own terms. But I think the political decision that, hey, we're drawing a line in the sand and it's the 31st of August and we're going to be out and sorry, uh, we're hustling to get everyone out of here. Sorry, Taliban. Like we capitulated to the enemy's needs and desires. And that was all political. We, we let pol politics drive that fight, which is never a good strategic 
nor tactical. It, it, it doesn't, when it flows from the strategic down to the tactical level, when it's generated out of politics, I don't think it works out well. And I, I don't know. Everything's driven by politics. Yeah, so. I mean, what a clause would say, war is politics by other means, right? So I, it's interesting. It's an interesting intractable problem, if you will. Uh, you can't divorce politics from war. It's very easy for us as military people to just sort of put the war in a box and say, everybody just leave me alone. Just let me focus on just, you know, doing this war thing. Uh, but the war thing is happening in real time. Um, do you remember when uh, we had some things at Abu Ghraib prison uh, where some, uh, you know, very junior untrained people acted completely unprofessionally. This is Iraq. And I, I want to say I could be wrong. It was like it seemed like Oh five, Oh six, maybe. I don't know. I was going to say, I was going to say probably 2005, 2006. Yeah, so, something frame. around maybe yeah. it was a four. Yeah. I don't know. But the bottom line is the war and the optics around it sort of took this turn. Like, Oh my gosh, what are we doing? And you know, the pictures that came out of that were atrocious and they were absurd. Uh, and, uh, in that, but that had such a massive strategic impact. Like now all of a sudden we're not even, we're letting people go. We're sending them to the Iraqis and then the nascent Iraqi army, which, you know, didn't have the capacity to keep people in jails. And so they were just, so we're, we're, we're capturing people on objectives. We're letting them go because we can't send them to Abu Ghraib or, or then we're sending people to Abu Ghraib, but what are all the checks and balances? And, and the enemy is exploiting every weakness. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'd love to say, yeah, let's just solve the problem that's given to us, uh, you know, and oh, everybody just butt out, let the military do military things. But that's not that's not the reality of the world that we live in. Our nation uh, and our taxpayers uh, don't want us to just sort of go on and do it without any oversight. And, you know, we'll tell them when it's done. They don't want that. And so we need to develop strategies that don't assume that's our operating environment because that's not our operating environment. Um, now, what those strategies are, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so that's, well, I mean, that's why it's, it's so a give hard. and take. You would, yeah, you wouldn't be there without politics yeah. and vice versa. And I've said that too uh, elsewhere on the podcast too. It's like it does go back and forth. You know, a wingman, uh, private first class. Yeah. You know, at that level, <laughs> they can impact at the strategic level with a stupid mistake. And if we look at the Russians right now, well, I just actually uh, released it uh, in my newsletter. It came out a year later, two Su-27s, two ship. One of them shoots two missiles at a RC-135 rivet joint. Yeah. Royal Air Force. Was this the British yeah, thing? So, this is the British thing? Yeah, British thing, right? But, you know, and the Brits accepted the Russians' initial claim that it was a malfunction, right? But now they they're releasing the, tra yeah. <laughs> the, the transcripts of what's going on. And this, and this wingman is, wingman or flight lead is sh slinging two Alamos or archers at this rivet joint. But that is a dude who's probably 30, 35 years old, 25 years old, uh -huh. that would could start World War III, you know? Uh, I know a it's, guy it's... I know a guy who missed the number one target in the world because five seconds prior to impact, prior to a munition impacting his speeding vehicle, this dude, who was a second lieutenant at the time, elected to switch his symbology from white hot to black hot. And when he oh did that... God. He, because he was white hot and he had white symbology and he was like, ah, I can't see the, the crosshairs. And when he did that, uh, he moved his laser off target and the low collateral weapon impacted aft of the vehicle and, you know, damaged it, but didn't destroy it. And that's just how that went down. Um, and so when you talk about the strategic 
implications of a single dude making a single decision. I mean, that was a, a, a thumb movement at the last minute, but it was at a critical point in time, at a critical point in our nation's history when lots of very important things were happening and it had an outsized impact. It made us look incompetent and stupid on a very high senior strategic level and it affected all kinds of stuff. I mean, there were ripples of that and he's just some dude, man. He's just some 26-year-old dude that made a error, you know? And, I mean, there are a lot of questions there. Why was he the person that was overhead that objective? You know, I mean, uh, should should everything hinge on that? I, I don't know. There's all kinds of fun things to talk about with that one. But at the end yep. of the day, uh, politics and optics drives what we do. So I get that. Um, what I would have liked to see from our military leadership is a pushing back against the idea that war can be precise and clean all the time. I would have liked to see uh, our leadership uh, accept that maximum violence and attrition is our path to success, advocate that, allow me to do it, uh, you know, people who can and will and are willing to eat the sacrifices, there are lots of us, allow us to do it, uh, and then accept if things go wrong or if, uh, you know, someone says, hey, you're being a baby killer, uh, or whatever. I mean, I, I would have liked them to say, look, man, if you want us to uh, to attrit the enemy to the point where uh, they are not they are not driving our strategy, we are driving our strategy, it's going to look ugly. And we have people who will do ugliness on your behalf, but we have to let them do it. I, I would have much rather have seen that in retrospect than seeing just the constant, constant, constant barriers. I mean, sitting on a target for a month and then finally get the chance and, you know, by then you hit him, but what's the opportunity cost of all the targets you pass up to hit him? You know, I mean, that that is what I wish I would have seen in retrospect. But, you know, hindsight's 2020. It always is. It always is. All right, I want to pivot. Let's talk some flying stories. So let's go back. I want to jump into Afghanistan, the 15th and the, the 16th. Can you tell me what uh, what that day was like? What's going on? What kind of? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. What's the? Yeah, it was, it was wild, there? dude. So I we'd been hitting targets because uh, you know we partnered with RPAs and lots of other flying assets, and so we'd been just uh, ruthlessly striking targets um, uh, right up into the suburbs of Kabul up until the fifteenth. Actually, I landed the morning of the fifteenth, and I woke up about five hours later. And I'm the squadron commander and the site commander because uh, it was you know we have a lot of responsibilities everywhere. And, uh, and I knew it was going down. I, I was an advisor, so I was still in touch with the Afghans there, um, which was wild because they were feeding me a constant stream of intel about, uh, you know, every single nuance and detail of how it was going down. We were looking heavily at the dam and the areas out east. Uh, turns out the Parwan prison was uh, pretty much the main thing. Should have been focused on more. And, and we were focused on that. Uh, but we were looking everywhere with minimum assets because... Most of the uh, assets that we had were driven out of theater because we didn't have the means to support them anymore once Bagram went down. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm based in Hkaya. I'm living in Kabul, Hkaya being Hamid Karzai International Airport. It's the, the single runway airport in the north side of Kabul. Um, and uh, and I, I, I went to sleep on the morning of the 15th. Um, and probably four or five hours later, I woke up with uh, the, the sirens going off. Um, you know, the air raid sirens going off and they had explosions and stuff. And I was like, okay, dude, I, this is it. It's going down. 
because I I've been watching it. I mean, for a week I've been watching it, and I knew it was going down. Um, and so I, I woke up, I, I ran to the talk, which is a, about a, a mile and a half away. I go in, talk, tactical operations center. Sorry, I don't want to be all acronym heavy. Yeah, that's, that's good. You know yeah. how we speak. You know how we speak. Yeah, everyone's like, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll try to get I, to I it. I was the living end. somewhere that was not where I was working. And I had, <laughs> yeah, to, I had, to, I had to run to work. <laughs> yeah. I had so to run to the corner is. office. Uh, anyway, yeah. I, I get in there and sure enough, uh, it's, it's going down. Um, the enemy is, you know, they've been building up their storehouses, uh, of munitions, uh, all around the perimeter of the city. They came in primarily, there were two highways, uh, to the South of Kabul that were kind of in parallel leading up through Logar province and a place called, um, uh, Maiden Shar. That's what it was. So Maiden Shar on sort of the Southwest of Kabul. And then, uh, the, highway from Patika through Muhammad Aga, Logar province uh, on sort of the southeastern side of Kabul. Those two main lines of communication uh, running up, the enemy was just massively building up storehouses down there and uh, overtaking uh, friendly positions that had artillery. And that was key to us is once the enemy takes over those artillery pieces and we have those D-30s pointed at Kabul, uh, do total game changer. Artillery is you know, as airmen, we don't think about the slot. You probably do as a fighter guy doing deconfliction with gun target lines. But for all the non-kinetic people out there who might be listening to this, uh, artillery is an absolute lethal destroyer of all things uh, on the battle space. Uh, so watch out for artillery. <laughs> okay, but artillery <laughs> yeah, starts getting pointed to you. Uh, those are big old bullets. <laughs> oh, dude, they're, they're big bullets. There's a lot of them. It's easy to shoot a lot. Uh, that's a game changer on the ground. So we saw the- Were you guys, was it, was the advance, I mean, was it like mass crowds uh, like rolling down the street or is this, are they like operating like small man teams just overtaking this stuff? It, so they, shoot, the Taliban is so good. They were so good and so professional. They maintained their small man teams. Small man teams is what I've been killing for years. Um, and But there were just a lot of them. You couldn't look around without seeing them. There were small man teams everywhere. And that presented a target, right? That's the thing about ISIS that was so lovely in the original invasion, reinvasion of Iraq, is that ISIS uh, made themselves an open target, bunch of idiots. And guess what happens yeah, no. when you present yourself to a you know a professional force like us <laughs> as an open target? Yeah, you you want to be in a hundred vehicle convoy uh, that lasts about uh, one day when you've got fighters overhead, right? Uh, with the authority to shoot anybody in a hundred vehicle convoy flying ISIS flags, uh, same sort of thing. So it became readily apparent that all these fobs were fallen, uh, Afghan forward operating bases right up until, uh, the edge of the city, even into the city, even into Southern outskirts of Kabul. Um, and, and they were building up warehouses. They were moving artillery pieces in They were, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, structure strikes were authorized. That's rare as you know, uh, cause you don't know who's in that structure. Uh, turns out a lot of people and a lot of secondaries. Um, but anyway, as they were doing that, it was just it was just obvious, man. I mean, you you've flown combat sorties, you, you've dropped, you get it. You look down and you're like, "This is the thing. This is it. There, there, there's a mass of them now, and they're all surrounding me." Uh, then the morning of the fifteenth, when I so I, I I slept for a couple hours, I rolled into the tactical operations center, I got the updates, and uh, at that time they were also making a movement to the north, the Parwan prison, which was on the uh, eastern side of Bagram was falling. They were making a concerted effort to that. 
well, you got 4,000 enemy combatants inside the Parwan prison. Uh, when that falls, and by the way, the enemy has truckloads of small arms that they can instantly deliver to these people. Uh, now you got a two-pronged assault. Combine that, you know, to the west side of Kabul is a bunch of mountains that don't really go anywhere. You can't escape. To the east side of Kabul is uh, the highway that goes through the valley to Jalalabad through Nangahar province, which is uh, completely controlled by ISIS. Um, I mean, you're you're in, a, you're in a hurt spot. So I knew that we were in a hurt spot. So I go to talk and I'm like, okay, uh, you know, what's going on? Get the update. Okay. Do they need me to launch now is the question. I have no crew rest, um, but this looks like an emergency. What do you think? So I called up uh, my authorities and they were like, it's an emergency. Throw everything you got right now. So I, I go, I get my crew. Uh, we step, we launch. Uh, total chaos. And when I say total chaos, man, it, I mean... Going to the airplane, uh, you have you ever been to Kabul? I've only flown over it. Okay, uh, well, yeah. you you heard, I'm sure that it's uh, HKIA was a NATO base. It was one of the nicer places in theater. There's lots of shops. There's, I mean, there's there was a Thai food place. Kabul wasn't a bad it, <laughs> wasn't a bad place to be. And it, it, it was kind of hodgepodge together too, right? Like different um, compounds. Yeah. Like if you go to almost like Bagram was a base, in my mind. Yeah. Kandahar was still also kind of hodgepodge together, but also more, I'd say more of a base like structure just with different compounds, but Kabul was more spread out. Yeah. Kabul was more spread out. Uh, HKIA, um, refers to a lot of things. I would have to take like an armored convoy between some of the places. So the special mission wing was on the Southwest side of the airfield. Uh, but there was a perimeter road that was not guarded and frequently attacked. Uh, the U.S. and uh, NATO forces were on the north side. The south side of the airfield was like the commercial airport, uh, which had okay security sometimes and not okay other times. Uh, but there were a lot of like open areas to the city. Um, and it's just a single runway, east-west runway. I want to say like 2911 kind of thing. I'm, I'm not sure I could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, bottom line, a hodgepodge of places, lots of stuff. As I'm moving from the uh, talk, uh, from like my my base where I'm getting intel out to the aircraft and where they're parked, which I think was ramp eight. Uh, I mean, chaos, dude. It was obvious. Um, it's really interesting to be in a crowd of people that knows the end is here. Um, I, I'd experienced it before in Africa, uh, but this was like on a, on a massive scale. And it, it's just a unique sort of energy to the air. Um, but third country nationals, people who like, you know, work in the shops and clean the toilets are like picking up objects and smashing windows and stealing things inside, like total chaos. Okay. Like everything that can be stolen is stolen. Uh, the chow hall done at the time, COVID was still like a thing, allegedly, whatever. Uh, so <laughs> like we have to like, you know, we're supposed to wear masks when we're walking around. You remember all that? Nobody was wearing a mask, like masks. If that tells you what yeah, like, you meant, yeah. okay, yeah. Uh, I, you know, all of the make-believe rules that structure society are gone when a genuine threat presents itself, unless a society is strong. And this was just, a, I mean, you know, the the Afghans working there just went crazy. The the people who you know had always had their eye on something in the German tactical store, uh, or always wanted that sweet Norwegian, uh, you know. Um, uh, outer shell that, you know, they just broke the window and stole it. And it was like, 
okay, well, I'm not going to stop and do anything. I'm going to go to my plane and take off and go to the embassy. But it was really interesting to have that drive while just chaos is engulfing around you. And you're like, this is it, man. You know, so we get to the plane, do a quick walk around. There's just massive shooting everywhere. I peek over to the other ramp where the Afghans were. And I, I sent you a picture of uh, me and one of the Afghans meeting. We had met like two days prior, the, the commander of the uh, AC-208 attack squadron there. We had met right there. And, uh, and he was freaking out because he, he felt it too. Uh, and so I peek over and I just kind of see where all the planes are. I think I sent you a video of the planes afterwards in the aftermath too. And, uh, and there are Afghans shooting at each other on the ramp, having a, having a, like engaged in a firefight, like right there in front of me, uh, because some of them are stealing airplanes and trying to escape the, the impending fall of the city. And some of them are like the security guys at the checkpoints were like, no, you can't do that. And so they're like trading fire. And I'm like doing my walk around, man, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you did those pictures. Cause I, saw, I mean, there's some like there's uh, Afghan who's sitting in this 208. And I was wondering because it's showing him. It's like right behind the cockpit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's sitting. That's in an it. RPK round. So was, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, one. actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he's maintainers. Yeah, I assume too. Like we, we jumped over. So I don't. I'm interrupting this story, but you probably during your 208 days knew a lot of these Afghans. Yeah, dude, I knew them all. That are in this. I knew yeah. them all, and I'm and I'm hitting them up by the way for intel also. Also. Uh, I'm like, Hey, we're looking at the Sarobi dam. Like, should I be looking there? Because I'm thinking I should be looking South. And they're, they're like, Oh no. Cause I mean, it's really interesting. You know, they got somebody who went to, you know, uh, school with this other guy and he knows a guy in the Taliban and he's here with all his friends. And so I'm like, and I did this in 2020 as well. I was like hitting them up. Like, I, I need you to tell me everything you know about where there are people I can target because I'm here to target people. Um, and so they'd feed me stuff and I'd go out there and I'd see things that matched it and I'd give it to my boss and things would work through. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to these guys. I look around the corner and I see this ongoing firefight and I see these guys like jumping in planes, like taxiing away all crazy. And I'm like, all right, get some, you know? So we get in our plane and we're, we're taxiing out and I, I call ground to taxi grounds done. They just abandoned. Strange. Yeah. They, they abandoned yeah. the, the tower. They're done. So I'm like, cool. Well, let's go anyway. Uh, cause it's, you know, we're evacuating the embassy. And, and we need somebody overhead the embassy to coordinate fires and to do security. I had done some, uh, some coordination for the Benghazi response. And in my mind was like, dude, uh, like, no, we're attack fangs out, you know, um, like we're not, I'm yeah, not going to be told no again. Um, and so, uh, we're just going for it, man. And so there's like, Afghans riding cars, crashing into each other on the taxiway. It was bananas. Uh, I go down and I see uh, there were some uh, combat control guys that were starting to set up a little car table. And I stop next to them and I'm like, uh, hey, dude, um, you know, what do you think? I'm just going to go. What do you think? And they're like, man, just go for it. You know, this is our frequency. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. Everything is crazy. Do whatever you want to do. And I'm like, well, I want to go fight. So, uh, so we take off and, you know, low altitude, heavy weight. We're getting tons of small arms. We're getting tons of, and I mean, it's daytime and I'm seeing tracers and I get an RPG and we're kind of jinking. You got a finite amount of energy. I mean, I'm not in a fighter, right? In a fighter, you could probably do all kinds of stuff, vertical takeoff. No, nah, man, I'm in a overweight U-28 and, uh, you know, I got I got a couple of turns at a couple hundred ATL <laughs> before, before me and the ground are going to have a conversation. So it's like, all right, dude, uh, game on, man. Um, so we did that thing and got out and, uh, it was a super, 
uh, fun, sort of dramatic, uh, ultra low level, uh, if you will, until I could find a place uh, over the downtown to kind of peel off in the mountains and climb. And all the time, I'm we're setting up comms with the embassy and the forces doing that thing. And uh, yeah, so we go over there. Uh, I don't want to get into a lot of it because I, I honestly don't know what is worth talking about on a podcast, but it there was some crazy stuff that went down over at the embassy. I, we saw embassy people being taken out, like like Afghans who worked at the embassy, taken out, put in these corridors by the Taliban, and uh, they were just beating on them, just buck-stroking them. They were shooting at the embassy, and it was like, and I was there with a bunch of RPAs, and it was like, uh, who are all loaded up, and it was like, all right, dude, like, let, let's get some, you know? Um, and uh, and we were told, no, no, we're not, we're not going to get any um, because it's not going to, like, j- just wait, just keep waiting, keep waiting, keep building the situation. So anyway, I, I talked to him and I was like, look, man, you know, there's a point where I'm going to make a decision. Um, and that point never came, frankly. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, it was, it was an interesting what? thing. Yeah. At this point too, how many embassy employees roughly? I mean, Oh dude. Were... Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I can't distinguish between the U S I will say the embassy evacuation lasted all day and all night. Um, and I was there for it along with some other folks and that's awesome. Uh, but there were also a lot of like Afghans that worked at the embassy who were being kicked out and the Taliban was like, they were roughing them up, but they weren't killing. And that's very important. They weren't killing them. They were taking some punk shots at the embassy, but they weren't like assaulting the embassy, if that makes sense. So they put up a perimeter, they harassed them. They did some harassing fire. And so, uh, the situation never exceeded the threshold uh, for us to attack. I think if we had attacked, it would have been a, a total bloodbath. Um, uh, because again, they had artillery pointed everywhere at us. Uh, and so we didn't. And so I, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but there must've been something happening behind the scenes, uh, because it didn't go any further than that. Um, but we don't know this at the time. So we're posturing, we're getting ready. And then I'm told, Hey, go look at the, the parliament real fast. So we, we look at the parliament, which are only like a mile away. And, uh, there was a massive convoy of Afghan uh, army folks who were surrendering real time uh, to the Taliban who were all flying their, their flags. Again, it's daytime, so I could see them. And we're like, oh my gosh, well, what does that mean? What's going on? Uh, there was this thing called the uh, the Caesar, uh, which is a very unfortunate acronym because I know that means combat search and rescue to you. It's not what it means in Afghanistan. Yeah. It meant uh, combined situational awareness room or something like that. Uh, but okay. it's basically, we had a, a bunch of Afghans who acted as the go-between from us doing strikes, uh, to vet that we weren't striking Afghans. So like I look down or somebody looks down, whoever looks down and they're like, Oh, this looks like an enemy. Okay. Well, guess what? The enemy looks exactly the same as the friendlies because the enemy has stolen all of the equipment and uniforms from the friendlies. So there was a cell of people that were Afghans that were on Roshan cell phone networks calling the Afghans at this forward operating base or whatever and saying, hey, uh, you know, are you out walking, you know, right here northbound right now? Or do you ever troll out? Oh, you don't? Okay, cool. And they would act as sort of a decon. Uh, well, those guys just, as soon as President Ghani gave up the ghost and, and left Afghanistan and flew away with his millions, uh, like a little bitch, by the way, but as soon as he left, um, those guys left as well. So we had no more mechanism to deconflict fires. So it became very challenging. Um, so then we see Afghan 
forces that we paid with our MRAPs that we gave them and Humvees surrendering to the Taliban. Uh, I'm being told that the Taliban are inside of the parliament live streaming uh, on Twitter that they had taken, now known as X, uh, that they had taken over, <laughs> that they had taken over the government. The president left. You know, our embassy is being harassed, but not being assaulted. They're allowing us to exfiltrate, but it's the whole thing is very tenuous. There were some Marines that were getting in like, no kidding, uh, firefights uh, in the city. I mean, there, we, people were trading, U.S. soldiers and Marines were trading fire with the Taliban on a onesie twosie basis, but we didn't know how big it was going to get. You know, so there were there were lethal firefights right. happening in the city. So bottom line, total chaos. Um, and we're like, this is, you know, so we're, we're doing our thing, which I don't want to get too in depth on. And as this is happening, especially after the live stream in the, the parliament, there's this massive crowd that's building up, uh, streaming from all over the city to a couple of highways that approach Hkaya, just full of cars. Uh, people are getting out. And when I say massive, I mean thousands. Um, I sent you a picture of like one of the gates with all those people. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not good at judging people, but we, we came up with this methodology of like giving a certain uh, field of view and then, you know, segmenting that into a smaller section, counting the number of heads and then extrapolating that for white. So using that me mechanism, which is imprecise, I'll grant, but using that mechanism, uh, somewhere around 10,000 people started gathering to the south side of HKIA and pushing in. And, uh, you know, we're still, we're looking for threats. We're, I'm coordinating with another U-28. Like, it's crazy, man. Stuff is going on. I might have battle damage because right. we took a bunch of fire taken off, you know? So I'm like, all right, dude, uh, what's happening here? And suddenly uh, the Afghan military protecting HKIA starts shooting into the crowd. I mean, like multiple machine gun checkpoints, full auto into the crowd. The crowd surges, massive stampede, mass casualty event, uh, people getting trampled to death. I mean, mass casualty event, all northbound, surge through the terminal. Um, and my big concern is, are there, are there enemies in here? Because I'm not the smartest man. So it took me a while to determine that this is civilians running away. This isn't, you know, the enemy doing, I kept expecting like a massive enemy invasion, but it wasn't that. And so it, now it might seem obvious. At the time, it was not obvious. It took me a second to realize what's happening. So once that happens, uh, dude, I'm, I, I reach out to a, a bunch of the rest, our rescue bubbas who are in a, a talk, um, in a separate talk from mine in HKIA uh, on a frequency that I was not using or working with. And I just cold call them. And I'm like, this is coming your way. Um, you know, I'm seeing them surge through uh, just overrun civilian airliners. I mean, thousands and thousands of people trampling on top of soldiers, soldiers shooting them like this is happening, but I don't see in the crowd. Uh, and, and this, I was very, very hesitant to say this, but I had to say it because who knows what's going to happen. Uh, I did not see any guns in the crowd. Um, I'm looking, I'm looking at that picture. We'll, we'll put that up when we edit the podcast, the sheer, mass of people that was wild that dude. Are yeah at this it's a, wall. It's i mean a zombie there's apocalypse like, man is a zombie apocalypse that's the way to put it like there's no room in between people there's there's no room whatsoever and they're all just mashed against it so i'm i can envision or i think i can envision you know like 
thing breaking through and going would just be pure pure insanity. Yeah, so, so I, dude, wow. I, I reach out and it's gonna sound stupid, but I, I was very concerned that our guys would start shooting civilians, not because they're bad, but because it's now nighttime and all of a sudden thousands of people are running at you when all day long it's it's been you know bombs going off and machine guns all day long. And so I, I call down. I'm like, dude, like, just prepare yourself. But in about ten minutes, this is happening to you. Um, but I think they're all civilians. I don't see a threat, but this is happening. So I, I don't know. I, I hope that made a difference. I don't know if it made a difference, but I, we made that radio call. And then it's like, okay, I'm like emergency bingo. Like I'm I'm well below bingo. I'm emergency fuel. So that then it's like, well, what am I gonna do? I got no diverts. The whole country has fallen to the Taliban. I'm well below emergency gas. This plane is crashing in a few minutes, and the runway is covered in people. All right, you have the aircraft. <laughs> I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah, this, I know. This it's, is it's, terrible. Dude, I loved it, man. It was fun. So we figured it out. Uh, I, I worked with another U twenty eight dude. Dude did an awesome job. We tried to land on the taxiway. Uh, the taxiway was full of dead bodies um, and like a trash can that was on fire and some other crazy stuff from that stuff I talked about earlier. And I was like, ah, I could probably, we, we found like this, you know, we're running out of gas, but, but those dudes found us like a strip of uh, concrete that I could land on there. Um, so I was like lined up on final to land on it. And, uh, and I, I, I'm on final and I'm on goggles and I can't see anything because the approach lights are just completely washing me out. Like the lights of the city of Kabul, dude, I was totally washed out. And so, uh, they were looking overhead, looking down. And, you know, we found that gap that we were talking about earlier, but yeah, there's just this gap in the crowd opened up and I could kind of sidestep. I, I did not have gas to go around. Um, I probably, I probably had 90 seconds worth of fuel remaining and that's gauge error, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, dude. Wobble. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a wobble. Um, so, you know, flame out any moment and, but we were able to just sidestep. So I kind of put some rudder in, you know, top rudder and coasted from the taxiway onto the runway uh some dudes there running across definitely got a haircut um but i uh, was able to set it down short field right in the middle of everyone uh, which is pretty wild we taxied back um we rtb'd my, my bros had taken off they were overhead then we get back and we get this call like hey uh i know that's that was pretty wild but but we need you to go again we need to double turn take off and get after one more time because you know shit's still going down so so we did i dude i was smoked I made some changes to the crew. I took a guy in the back, my SEL, who was an awesome dude. I, I took him, not because uh, the, the senior airman who was with me did anything wrong. He didn't. But, I mean, I, I had no crew rest. Now I've got double no crew rest. Now I'm like on the 20, you know, I'm at like on hour 24. It's now the 2 a.m. I woke up at 7 a.m., you know. Um, but we got a, approved for a high-risk mission, you know, without any crew rest to go double turn through what we just landed in. Uh, to go do it again and we assumed we couldn't land a second time so we found a place to crash sort of in the wilderness and just kind of fight slash evade our way back to Kabul um, so I, I took my SEL with me because I was like bro I'm I'm not making smart decisions I'm I'm tired uh, I want you to QC me to make sure I don't do something terrible but this is the game plan uh, I can't believe we got it approved but once they said approved uh, then I kind of knew this is it man you know um so we went out, we did it a second time. It was all good. Uh, definitely had some wild things happen that time as well. Uh, we land and uh, and then uh, I think I think one plane landed behind us and then it was it, we were down. 
There were just too many refugees. They overwhelmed our hangar. They were sitting on our planes. Uh, we couldn't taxi out anymore without taxiing into them. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I kind of, we kind of put pause on operations for about a day. Uh, and then, uh, I didn't even know the war was over, dude. I, I slept pretty hard. I woke up, uh, realized that we didn't have any food, um, that the hospital was closed. I had a guy with stitches. I had another guy with some other problems. Uh, so it was like time to put together a squad of people to go pilfer whatever we could, <laughs> which was awesome. Um, you know, so just, uh, put, put together a team with hammers and go break into anywhere and like steal whatever supplies you can in order to continue. Cause, uh, you know, get ready. So after a day of taking a knee and, uh, stealing air conditioners and, and vehicles, we, uh, we were ready to rock and roll again. And then I found out the war was over and I was like, what? So then we had to shift from, you know, go attack to go protect the perimeter of HKIA, um, and, uh, and everything that entailed. And so that was pretty weird, but yeah, we did it. So, yeah. Well, and uh, super humble. You got a distinguished flying cross. Rewarded the distinguished flying cross for that. And there's a lot going into it. I'll just read the snippet here, which I I did chuckle uh, a little bit. But when it comes into the landing, uh, Colonel McIntyre used night vision goggles and infrared sensors to execute a perilous and unprecedented feat of airmanship by landing between a moving gap <laughs> in the crowd. Despite uh, so, I'm yeah, just seeing like wild, this mask. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> yeah, so the way to put it, it was wild. So when we share the picture, then people can envision just this massive herd of people, and you're landing your U-28 in between these people. Insane. Yeah, you, you know what though, man. Um, uh, no drama, easy to do. Uh, I, I've never done that before. Obviously, I don't know anybody who's ever even contemplated doing something like that before. Uh, but like we were talking about earlier, um. This is a culture that always looks for the next challenge, that always finds the weirdest, artist runway to land at, that always says, okay, but can you do it higher? Can you, can you do it when you're tired? Can you do it when you haven't eaten all day? Can you do it when you have diarrhea? Can you do it when the weather's terrible? I mean, like pile challenge on top of challenge on top of challenge, and then can you go still kill the target and safely recover uh, in the worst possible conditions? And the answer is yes, I can. And it's not because I'm special. It's not because I'm a great pilot. I'm not. It's because I'm around great people and a great culture. And so that's what I'll say for the U-28. It's a great group of people and a great culture. Um, and they're ready for any challenge uh, that the nation needs us to do. Talk to me about the last basically two weeks there. So after you wake up on the 16th or 17th there, now it's more base defense. Yeah. Everything, yeah. I, I think... Kind of stabilized, right? I mean, stabilized, <laughs> I use that term loosely. Yeah. Um, but Abbey Gate bombing, that happened. That obviously injected a lot of chaos. Um, any involvement or dealings uh, like with Abbey oh, Gate yeah. bombing? Oh, yeah. What you guys I, I, put doing a whole, I put a whole crew in for the Abbey Gate. They did an amazing job. Um, I was on station after them. Uh, they, bro, it was a very wild time. I, I mean, it's funny. You can say things stabilized when you have no food except whatever expired MREs you can find under somebody's mattress in a place, you know, a mile away from you that you have to break into. And by the way, it has Taliban inside of it. So you got to go and protect yourself. There's wild animals there. I mean, like the situation was completely crazy. Our support was lacking. Uh, and I'm not throwing spears at anybody. I mean, the, we had to exfil everybody. So I get it. But yeah, the, the team uh, didn't awesome job sustaining. We were able to sustain 24-7 ops uh, doing base defense, which uh, again, not a lot happened uh, publicly, but I'm telling you a lot happened. 
there were some great dudes, uh, great captains that deconflicted uh, green on blue. You know, the Abbey Gate was not the first attack that was tried. Um, several were interdicted. Uh, lots of wild stuff happened. Uh, and, uh, and I'm really proud of the guys that, and, and girls that were around me, uh, that just every day pushed up, uh, with terrible sleep, no crew rest, bro. There were people, I mean, dying on the barbed wire fence, uh, right next to our compound all night long, people screaming, nobody got good, uh, sleep. Uh, we're by the North gate, thousands of people all night being trampled, gunshots constantly, uh, sporadic comms with your family. Um, there were so many dead people. They filled up every single freezer. They came and tried to put them in my freezer. My freezer was like small, but you know, it was a walk-in freezer. I kept some fruit there for the people. I, I didn't want to fill it up with dead bodies, but I mean, screaming constantly, wailing, refugees dying. Uh, it, it was a, it was a brutal situation and the team did amazing. Uh, mostly. Uh, a couple of dudes, I had to just get out of there. So I, I did, we did operate with minimum people um, because some people just had to leave. They just weren't cut out for that. Uh, but the team did an amazing job. I'm really, really proud of the team. Um, yeah, Abbey Gate went down. Uh, the, the people on station during Abbey Gate <laughs> did an amazing job. Uh, largest casualty evacuation, uh, which the U-28's done hundreds of those, thousands. Um, but the largest one in terms of the number of casualties that I know about. I've seen some pretty gnarly mass casualty events. Uh, once I showed up uh, after Abbey Gate, about five hours after it went down, I was really shocked at the scale of the bloodshed. It was a, uh, Abbey Gate's on the southeast side of Hkaya, and it was, uh, you know, those uh, super tall, like concrete barriers, you know, that are up everywhere in every deployed yep. location. It was just a, a wall of those in this corridor. And when the dude uh, S-vested himself, the suicide vest, when he blew himself up, it camped that explosion in this very dense population, uh, resulting in just a a uniquely horrific volume of bloodshed. I didn't even know what I was looking at for the first like couple hours. I was looking Jeez. down on it. I was like, okay, I see a couple of people. I see some body parts. I see people collecting it. You know, I've seen that kind of stuff in the aftermath of IDs and stuff before. Uh, but you know, what what is this? It took me a while to realize that the, the Abbey gate I was looking at now was all dark and the Abbey gate I was looking at yesterday wasn't. And the reason is it was, it was blood from hundreds of people that was just spattered for, you know, 200 meters and up the walls. It was just totally bananas. And the crew who uh, handled that casualty evacuation, obviously the Marines did an amazing job uh, on the ground, but the crew did a great job too. Uh, that the U-28 crew that was overhead, they were, uh, you know, on the ground, the guy, and this happened probably a half mile south of where we were living. So we heard it, did the accountability and everything. Um, in the air, though, they were shutting down the runway sporadically for people who were just grabbing uh, whoever they could and whatever vehicle they could steal and, and move them north across the runway. But there are C-17s landing constantly. So they just took sort of airfield control on themselves uh, to handle just random, you know, Marines uh, or whoever. Uh, driving people in random trucks without any comms, crossing an active runway. In addition to the rotary wing guys did a spectacular job just taking off and flying a half mile south and picking up whoever they could load. And so that the coordination of all those movements together uh, was done by uh, by by some of our captains, and they they did a, a truly uh, wonderful job. Um, and I am convinced that uh, people uh, could have died but didn't because you know the golden hour. 
uh, was preserved by by uh, by teams by multiple teams of Americans, and and I'm happy that my guys were were one of those teams uh, that could be overhead and could be making sure that this casualty evacuation to the Rule Two, which was the clinic on HKIA, could happen as quickly and efficiently as possible with multiple moving pieces. I'm sure you can imagine the north-south movement of vehicles and helicopters talking to nobody, along with the east-west movement of multiple C-17s, uh, creates a, a problem, you know, and they solved yeah, that problem. Yeah. And it was a problem nobody had ever envisioned. But like I said, just thinking creatively, approaching problems creatively uh, enabled them to do so in a masterful way. Yeah, that's impressive. Well, Sam, as we wrap up here, I want to ask for any parting shots. But before we do that, I'm hoping you're willing. I meant to mention this beforehand. I do a There I Was segment, a little, little separate thing that I released for uh, Patreon supporters. So if you're willing to hang around after we say goodbye here for just a few more minutes, we'll record one of those. It'll take five, 10 minutes if you got that. But I want to part with any parting shots, thoughts of wisdom. I usually ask people, you know, if you found 15, 16 year old walking down the street, any advice you give him, but you know, it can be applicable to anything you see today, your career, et cetera. So big softball question there. Okay. Yeah. That's a big softball, isn't it? Uh, I got a good one for you. <laughs> so, so I, I'm in Africa. Okay. Around about 2013, 2014. And I'm going after this target who's absolutely despicable. Okay. His thing was to find poor people who had uh, special needs children and buy these children uh, to use them as suicide bombs, okay? He's just a total piece of shit human being, but that's the kind of enemy that we're fighting and killing. So, I mean, we're, we're pulling out all the stops. I am anyway, uh, and, and our team, like, you know, working extra hours, uh, staffing multiple uh, you know, requests to, to refuel at different places, Timbuktu, I mean, Tesselit, uh, Mauritania, I mean, everywhere that I could go to get gas enabled me to spend longer on station. Anyway, multi-month effort to put ourselves in a position to crush this dude. Um, and finally that opportunity presented itself, uh, through a confluence of the entire team. And, uh, it was an all night thing, get gas, push our way out there. Uh, the guy that I had designated, uh, to go fly the mission, uh, I woke him up in the middle of the night. I was like, dude, it's game time. Uh, and he was like, I am, well, first of all, I briefed him on the mission and he was just Google eyes the whole time. And it finally was like, Sam, I just pounded an Ambien like two hours ago. Like I'm, I'm high as a kite, man. I'm not ready for this. So I was like, cool. Uh, so, so I did it. Um, but the rest of the team was super ready. Um, and anyway, bottom line, many months spent with a lot of effort doing something that doesn't sound sexy, just compiling a bunch of data, put ourselves in a position to finally destroy this dude, got overhead the target uh, with the French, uh, burned him down, burned down all the people around him, just absolutely mercilessly destroyed him and left his body to be eaten by animals. Good. Uh, RT bead, um, you know, talking to each other about the story, telling, you know, one of my bosses, trying to put in one of the teams who had been forward staged uh, with, you know, in this terrible place uh, for a couple of, for a couple of days, trying to put them in for a ward. They didn't get in a war and I'm bitching about it. Anyway, good buddy of mine, a guy named uh, Matt Roland. I was telling him about it. He was there with me and, uh, and I'm like, dude, you know, I, I did all this and I, I'm really proud of the team. I'm trying to get the team recognized uh, for this thing that they did. And, you know, it really, really, really just pulled it together. And, 
I don't know why, but you know, we're not able to get recognition, which sounds petty and lame, but you know how it is. Like I, I want, you want the team to be recognized. Yep. Anyway, Matt said to me, and here's, here's the answer to your question. Softball. Matt said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sucks. Uh, you know, sometimes it just happens like that, but you know what you got? What, what I get, Matt. And he said, you got to do it, you know? And so here's Matt, this Lieutenant, you know, and I'm a major site commander, you know, think that, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he completely schooled me and I was embarrassed because he was right. Uh, what you get at the end of the day, uh, you know, that you could show off whatever ticket you have, whatever award. I mean, dude, that all pales in comparison to the knowledge that you got to go and do the thing. And I got to do it. And I'm very, very blessed that I got to do it around just great people. Um, I, I got to do something that I think was worth my best effort. Um, I wanted to hurt the people who uh, tried to hurt innocent Americans. And I believe that I did. Um, and that was totally badass. So what did what do you get to do if you sign up to do this? Well, you get to do it. <laughs> it, it sounds pedantic and it. redundant, but that's yeah. what you get to do. And uh, and I was very happy to do that um, and blessed to do it. Matt was killed. Um, he was murdered by the Taliban uh, in an insider attack. Uh, in 2015, um, and he got a silver star for protecting his teammates uh, doing it. But he is an absolute hero, and those are the kind of heroes uh, that you get to be around if you want to do this kind of thing. So I would say to any listener out there who's got the itch to get involved in uh, what's happening and get involved in the military and get involved in special operations, uh, do it, man. You know, a lot of folks aren't going to understand maybe what you're doing. The sacrifices will seem weird. Uh, there's going to be times you sit around and you wait and you're like, what am I doing with myself here? I'm, I'm hurrying up to wait again. Uh, but eventually, if you try hard and uh, and you're around the right team and you're blessed, you'll get to do the thing. And there's nothing uh, as special to doing the thing and to being around other people. We get to do that. Sam, I appreciate it. And I appreciate Matt's quote. That's something I'll take because that's it puts things in perspective. How easy things get lost in perspective sometimes with, you know all the shenanigans that go along. So we'll carry his memory on. But if you're willing to hang around here for a few more minutes, I'll hit stop on this. We'll do a There I Was story, and then I'll let you go about your day. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgearin.com slash rain.